0: I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. This week, we're joined by Charles Dunst, a senior associate and deputy director of research and analytics at the Asia Group and author of the recent book, Defeating the Dictators, How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strongman. Charles, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: So what made you decide to write this book in the first place and give our readers sort of the thumbnail sketch of what this is about?
1: Sure. Well, I really wanted to write this book after having lived years ago in Hungary, where obviously democracy has declined, having lived in Cambodia, which has been an autocracy for the better part of four decades, and really having traveled around much of Southeast Asia and then parts of the Middle East, and really hearing from people, particularly since 2016, 2017, that well, the the West is no longer our model. Where if you talk to the intelligentsias of maybe Hanoi, or uh, certainly in maybe somewhere like Cairo, in the UK, the US are no longer necessarily considered models because people look at Brexit, or they look at the Trump election, or they look at. January 6th or three prime ministers in three months in the United Kingdom and say, well, why would we want a system like that? Why would we want such a messy system where why can't why don't we just instead have a path to prosperity that looks like Singapore? That's the answer you get in much of much of Southeast Asia and some of the Pacific islands as well. Let's be like Singapore. Whereas if you travel around the Middle East, that answer is, well, let's be like Saudi or let's be like the UAE. And in much of Africa, it's Rwanda. Well, why don't we be like these Theoretically benevolent autocracies that well they provide for their people and everyone gets rich and life is so life is so easy. And of course, that's not true. That I think that that notion is wrong. But as someone who obviously born and raised in the United States, I lived in the United Kingdom and I believe in democracy, I wanted to write a book that doesn't just lament the problems of the decline, because I feel like there are many books that have done that, and I wanted to write something instead that actually made a very positive case for democracy, and that advanced pretty specific policy solutions for a variety of democratic countries. And I think I had a UK publisher, so it forced me to not write a US-centric book, which was really nice. But I basically wanted to go through and say, well, what are the problems if autocracies run the world? And if there are more autocracies, if more countries slide from democracies to autocracies, well, why does that actually matter? And then here's, here's a roadmap for making sure that doesn't happen, and that the mechanism at play here is one. If democracies like the United States, like the United Kingdom, like Germany, like Japan, South Korea, if we work better internally, we are less likely to get destabilizing elections like Trump or destabilizing votes like Brexit. We're more likely to kind of counter that autocratic impulse at home. And secondarily, if democracies are working better than they are right now, you are more likely to have the intelligentsias of a Hanoi or across Africa or the Middle East say, well, maybe we do want to be like the United States in the United Kingdom and, and South Korea. Maybe we want to be like them. So, I don't want to bore everyone going through the entire roadmap. But I looked at things like meritocracy, things like accountability, things like trust in government, the folk the necessary necessity of making long-term plans, investing in human capital and infrastructure and having wiser immigration policies, things that are really basic to good governance and that I think on which democracies have have lagged in recent years.
2: You used the term in pathing like a benevolent autocracy. Is there such thing as a benevolent autocracy either in practice or in theory? Like could it even exist in your mind?
1: To me no. I mean I I think one of the things I said in the book was no matter the level of economic prosperity, I personally would prefer to be American than to be Singaporean. I'd rather be British than be Singaporean even if the average Singaporean is wealthier, but that is clearly not a view shared around the world. I think there are more there are hundreds of millions if not billions of people who would Much prefer to have more money in their pocket and have better infrastructure than to live in a democratic system. And I think you probably see a little bit of this sentiment in India where there's less preference for, I think, democracy as a concept and more a focus on, well, who is going to deliver? Who's going to root out corruption? Who's going to build more bridges? And of course, I don't think Lee Kuan Yew is particularly benevolent in Singapore, but certainly there are those who do. I mean, I think if you talk to most Singaporeans, they would say, yeah, we're pretty happy with the trade we've made of giving up some freedoms for a government. That works. And I was telling telling Grant, I did a South African radio show last week, and South Africa is a developing democracy. A lot of things don't work. Corruption is very endemic. And the host says, I'm going to do a live poll. Please call in and tell us, would you give up some of your democratic freedoms for a country that works? And 99 out of the 100 people said, yes, they would. And that, to me, is really troubling and really indicative of the notion that people are looking for a a benevolent dictator, even though I don't think that really exists in, in practice.
0: That brings up a really interesting question, which is, how do you deal with the fact that democracies are choosing autocrats, or that Singaporeans are broadly happy with the choice they've made? Like, Obviously, I I will safely say that I speak for all of us, that we are all small-D Democrats, that we all support freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of the press, that we think everyone should have a voice in their government. But you know, if Singapore wants to live in a system that is broadly autocratic, although, you know, they have elections that are weird and whatever, whatever, what's to make us say that that is a choice that they cannot make?
1: Well, that's one of the things I I emphasize in the book is that it's the road, this roadmap for promoting democracy or solidifying democracy where it already exists and promoting democracy abroad is decidedly non-interventionist. I mean, I'm not saying that American scholars or American diplomats should go to Singapore and lecture them on why they need to democratize. I don't think that's a reasonable way to conduct foreign policy, but I do think that Americans, Brits, Germans, Singaporeans, Vietnamese would be better off in the long term if more countries are democratic and I, I don't quite, I don't want to just parrot the the democratic peace theory, but I do think there is some validity to the notion that when you have more democracies you are more likely to solve disputes in a more reasonable way you are less likely to have Invasions, you're less likely to have kind of uh, the moves that China's taken on trade against countries like Australia and Lithuania. So I don't want to make people think that I'm saying we should go, you know, go into Vietnam and forcibly make them democratize. I don't think that's worked, and I don't, I don't think that's a reasonable way to go about foreign policy. But I do think making the case for our own system is worth doing, and I think it is worth saying that well, we live in a democracy, we believe in democracy and we believe it is a better system than autocracies. And that doesn't mean we can't have relationships with autocracy, which is also something I want, I want made very clear in the book, that just because the United States is a democracy, and we believe demo- believe in democracy, and we like having uh, like-minded partners, doesn't mean we shouldn't engage Vietnam. It doesn't mean we shouldn't engage Singapore. It just means we have to make sure that we're not sacrificing our values to do so. And I think the the relationship with Vietnam is probably a good example on that front, where we have very close ties with the one party, the one party state of Vietnam, but we raise human rights pretty actively, at least in private engagements. And I think there have been some positive advancements, particularly on things like LGBT rights. Uh, one of the the one of the late Obama era ambassador who was openly gay, brought his husband, brought his two children, brought his mother, and they lived in a three generation household, which is very Vietnamese for those who've kind of t- traveled there. It's a very kind of cultural, culturally significant thing. And polls show it boosted Vietnamese approval of gay rights, like pretty rapidly within just a few years. And that, to me, is a very positive example of, well, how do we engage in autocracy that might not have the same social freedoms or political freedoms that we do? It is leading by example
2: a related question Grant asked about, you know, what about these instances in other countries where where countries are choosing allegedly choosing autocratic role. But like what about in the u s itself, where, you know, supposedly, We do believe in democracy. And yet there have been recently democratically elected leaders that have very autocratic tendencies. And somebody who believes in democracy, like where is there a line to be drawn where you say you actually can't choose to give up your rights in this domain? Because that actually doesn't qualify as a democracy anymore. Do you get what I'm saying? I mean, this is like a really convoluted question.
1: It's the question basically between at what point does a democracy transition, A, from a liberal democracy to an an illiberal one? And then when does an illiberal democracy stop being democracy? Where, and something I said in a few podcasts before, a few kind of interviews before, is well, you know, do I think electing Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil was anti-democratic. No, I think he won an election freely and fairly. And certainly, you know, despite the protests of his supporters left when he lost, I think that was a, a difficult moment for Brazil. And he may have governed somewhat illiberally, but it was still within the constraints of a democratic system. My concern would be, well, in a country with weaker institutions, could a Bolsonaro type come into power and essentially do away with those liberal checks? To govern in a way that is no longer democratic. And that's personally what I would argue has happened in Hungary. And the notion is Hungarians Hungary had a fully free and fair election today, I would wager a fair amount of money that Viktor Orban would win. So basically you would have enough Hungarians, maybe not a majority, it's a parliamentary system, whatnot, but you'd have a significant number of Hungarians voting to give up some of their rights, essentially, in return for Viktor Orban, a politician. With whom they are aligned on maybe ethnic issues or identity issues and to some extent economic issues, and that to me at some point in Hungary being kind of a key example, it it is no longer a democracy. So, and it's this hard question of well, am I I, the American going to run around the world telling people to not vote for X, Y, and person X, Y, and Z person because I don't think that they're democratic? I think that's always a difficult position to be in as an American or as a Brit or as a German, kind of lecturing far off countries on their own politics. But I do think you can sit in the United States and be concerned. I think it's a huge concern to me that there are people who are, in theory, willing to give up many, some, a little bit of their political rights for kind of a quote unquote country that works. And more than anything, that's reflective to me of failures by kind of current governments. And I don't want to keep talking about Hungary, but it is kind of exactly what happened where Hungary had a socialist government that was a really incompetent and just completely inept on economic issues. And then this speech leaked in which the leader, the leader of the party told his party, we lied, we lied to the election, we were corrupt, we failed to deliver. And Viktor Orban turns around and points at that and goes, look, not only were they incompetent, they were also lying. Here are these liberal globalist elites doing all these things wrong. And here's why I'll fix that. So the mechanism, I think, to get these illiberal leaders that risk trampling on democracy is essentially left-wing ineptitude. Coupled with maybe a charismatic leader able to tap into these economic and uh, and identity issues, and I know that was also a convoluted answer to your somewhat convoluted question. I don't know if I got did I get there?
2: Yeah, no, I think I think you did, and I mean, I think it's clear there isn't there is no sort of bright line I think that you can draw, but that in some ways maybe there's a little bit of a spectrum. But at a certain point, like there are there are certain rights of a citizen that that, you know, you shouldn't, shouldn't really be able to surrender without the system no longer qualifying as democracy.
0: Without making this a purely Hungary-focused podcast, although Budapest is by far one of my favorite cities in the world, and it is a tragedy, what is happening in that country, I think broadly, and I, I cannot stress enough to our listeners, this has been one of the only books that I have deeply read this year, and you sh- absolutely should too. One of the things that I sort of, when I was thinking about the book, I think there's sort of a difference in authoritarians between Asian authoritarianism and sort of Eastern European, broadly the West, want to be authoritarians. Because I feel like East Asia is sort of has the ideal of kind of a technocratic authoritarianism Whereas Eastern European Europe has way more of a focus on identity, Russia is an orthodox country. Hungary is a Catholic country. Oh, even lump India in there is saying India is a Hindu country. Yes, all of them try to like wave their hands a little bit at economics, but the people that are voting for them are voting for them for like ethnic, tribal, cultural reasons. And I, I found it interesting that that wasn't like a, a major theme of the book. How do you think about the cultural component of that? Because it's so, such a big part of the U.S., right? Even if, we fitch, even if we fixed all the roads and all the bridges, I'm not sure that that would change the 30% hardcore Trumpers into Mitt Romney voters, let alone Joe Biden voters. Yeah, it's an interesting
1: point, and it's something I've been thinking about in terms of, and it's something I thought about while writing the book. Obviously, and thanks for for your nice your nice comments on it. I think one question, and it keeps coming up in interviews, is well, how much of the autocratic impulse is based in identity, and how much of it is based in economics? I tend to lean more towards economics, and obviously not in all contexts. But say, if you're in the United States you have that thirty percent core Trump supporters who are going to vote for him no matter what. If you waved a magic wand and fixed all the rid- fixed all the bridges, everyone had good jobs and inflation was down, I think you might get that number down to like 10 or 15%. And I think there is something fairly similar that is true in much of Europe. I mean certainly in Hungary. I mean it's one of the and not, again not to not to harp on Hungary, but as I kind of wrote about it in the book is he came into power on economic issues. And as much as the western media coverage since 2017 has all been about the it's all been about migration it's all been about his comments on Christianity and about LGBT issues. His bread and butter, and the reason he gets in power and remains there, is that enough Hungarians think that he'll just deliver better, and that he's anti-elite, and he's anti-corrupt, and of course he, his allies control the media enough to make them think that's the case, when in reality I think he's actually quite, quite corrupt, uh, his government's quite corrupt. So I actually do think economics are more so at the front here. And There's an interesting example recently where Bolsonaro... Uh, Giorgio Maloney, who leads the most far-right government in Italy since World War II, and Yoon Suk-yeol in South Korea, who's he's kind of slightly different. I don't think he's particularly far-right, but certainly a populist election. One of the big planks of all three of their elections was meritocracy. They all talked about how their countries, the real meritocracy has declined, and the jobs for the real Brazilians or the real Italians have declined, and all three of them said that gender quotas were the problem that gender quotas for women either in the boardroom or in government were the problem, and they were diluting the real meritocracy. And while I might agree that meritocracy has been diluted, I don't think gender quotas are, are the problem necessarily. But it's a clear demonstration to me that as much as the Western media tends to focus on these far-off non-English-speaking countries talking about the, the kind of theoretically crazy things they say on identity, I think a lot of it is about things like meritocracy. It's about kind of corruption. And if you think about drain the swamp, well, what's drain the swamp about? Drain the swamp is about corruption. Drain the Swamp is not about when you think just the phrase itself is not about we need fewer immigrants. It's not this is we need this white Christian country. Drain the Swamp is the governing elites are corrupt and have not have not served me well. So I'm trying something else. And that something else is this kind of a liberal guy. I do think marrying those economic issues with identity issues can be really powerful. And I think certainly Trump is an example of that. I think Orban's an example of that. Uh, to some extent, and probably less, slightly less. Well, not a lesser extent. Probably the similar extent. Modi is an example of that. So that's kind of how I would think about it. Certainly, one probably can't exist without the other. But even even in Asia, I do think identity is is pretty pretty much at the top. And even in Singapore is kind of quasi interesting, where they try to not talk about identity as much as possible. It's kind of the opposite. The opposite issue. We're talking about identity in inflames issues and kind of dilutes the fairly effective autocratic system. So, but even still, it's not, it's not far, far from people's minds, I don't think.
0: I mean, so let me push you a little bit on this issue. Because when I look at the authoritarians, China is committing a genocide against the Uyghurs. Myanmar's committing committing uh, ethnic genocide. Modi is doing some bad stuff with the Muslims in India. Hungary is trying to basically Christianize or re-Catholicize its country. We can talk about stuff with trans people in the US, you know, to to varying degrees, these seem to be very core to the the problem. But also there's a, a book, and I'm I'm gonna reach for the name. And if I hard cut right now, podcast listener to me saying the name slowly, you'll know that I've not remembered it. The book I was reaching inelegantly for here is called The Sum of Us: What Racism Costs Everyone. And how we can prosper together by Heather McGee about how there were more public pools in the US before integration. And then after integration, they basically filled in all the public pools. Rather than integrate them, they filled them in. And when I think about a lot of the pieces in your book and the, the success stories we point to, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, like, like the, the general like ah, uh, Scandinavia, good democracies, happy people, good economies. They're so ethnically homogenous. They're really anti-immigration, vehemently anti-immigration. And you've seen a bunch of issues around that. And I just wonder if a bigger part of a success of democracy is changing how people identify themselves. Either as like, you know, we're all Americans or we're a rising country and so we're all going to work hard and we'll achieve success together. Rather than sort of like, oh, economics will like smooth all the rough edges of these issues.
1: It's a really interesting question. And the, the example it makes me think of is actually the U.S. versus the U.K., where you don't have to be born here, you don't have to look like the founding fathers did, and you are without any qualifications an American. Jewish American, Black American, Japanese American, whatever. You are an American. Whereas in England, they're kind of two separate identities, where there's British and there's English. You can be anything and be British, but being English kind of do have to be white of Anglo-Saxon stock. And that to me is really indicative in a weird way of the advantage America might have on this front where, you know, Canada is maybe a little, a little bit similar, but there are very few democracies, particularly when you think about Europe and you think about Northeast Asia, there are very few democracies to which you can show up and basically say, well, I have full, full cultural rights, full stop where I am an american I'm am a Canadian. Germany is sure you you can be a German citizen but there's also ethnic Germans and Japan and South Korea are like totally at the, end of the other end of the spectrum where you know I could live in Japan for 60 years I'm I'm never going to be Japanese. So I don't necessarily think that diversity is inimical to democracy. I mean obviously not, but I think I think Yasha Monk wrote a book on this that essentially demographic diversity is certainly a challenge to democracies that diversity is hard to manage. It is democracy existing with diversity is very abnormal in the state of human history, where most human societies have either been homogenous or have been autocracies. And you can think about the Ottoman Empire was super diverse, but an empire. Uh, or the British Empire was super diverse, but an empire. Whereas you can think about the most successful democracies from an early stage. I mean, the early United States, the think about who the citizens were, was very homogenous. So I think it is something that has to be Managed, and I don't, I don't have the greatest solutions for necessarily fixing all of our, our kind of ethnic and, and racial politics. But one of the things I talk about in the book, with regard to immigration, is I do actually think that I mean polls do show this. That I think it's a sixty-five-ish, seventy percent of Americans are broadly open to immigration. They say immigrants are generally positive for the society. People are very pro, very pro legal immigration. Illegal immigration is kind of a separate issue in people's minds. I think Americans like. Rules on that front, but it's how do we message that? Where how do we make sure we're talking about immigration in a way that's really salient for the average person, particularly in times of economic downturn? Where if you lost your job, if you live in Ohio and you lost your job because of outsourcing to China or outsourcing to Vietnam, and you're listening to national leaders talk about the the need in terms of justice or, or moral, the moral need to bring in more people from Syria or from Mexico or from Honduras. I think it is obvious why you might get irritated to say, well, this government hasn't delivered for me economically. My, my life hasn't gotten better. My expectations for the lives of my children have declined. Well, why would I want more people from somewhere else coming in? Why would I want the government to support them? I think one very obvious way to counter that is to say over and over again that to study after study, all the data shows that immigrants put more into the U.S. economy and more into the U.S. government than they take out, even refugees who, you know— People, generally, people not coming to this country with a ton of education, with a ton of just experience, not what we might necessarily consider high skilled, in their first five years into the country, I believe, pay $23,000 more into the US government than they take out in benefits. And if that's just refugees, think about pure economic immigrants, folks coming from India who want to be PhD students or, or whatnot. And I think it's slightly a messaging problem for pro immigration politicians, particularly in the United States. I mean, the UK is, has their own kind of complex politics, but I think something's fairly similar there. And even in Germany, I think I would put Northeast Asia in a separate category, honestly. But when you talk about the West, so Europe and North America, I think there is a need to talk about immigration and basically say, well, our birth rates are declining. If you want someone to pay for your social assistance in 30 years and 40 years, you're going to have to accept more immigrants. And I think people are more receptive to that, no- to that notion than they are just about kind of terms like, somewhat vacuous terms like justice.
2: So the title of the book is Defeating the Dictators. So walk us through what you believe to be the most effective strategies or measures that can actually do that. Sure.
1: I mean, the whole premise of the book is you can defeat would-be dictators internally by delivering better governance. And maybe that's too optimistic. Maybe, Maybe so much of it, the rise of autocracy is just about identity, but I don't really buy that. I think a lot of it is about people being fed up with what they believe to be poor governance. And you can look across the West and studies, every study does show it, that people are less optimistic at their children's lives than they were 20 years ago. And that's really troubling to me that you could live in the richest country in the history of the world and think your children are going to have a worse life than you did. Uh, or same goes for the UK, same goes for Japan, same goes for South Korea. And if the system that has delivered that kind of failure is a democratic one, it is fairly understandable to me of why someone might look at Singapore or might look at the UAE and say, they have it so much better. Let's try that. What we've had for so long, the democracy we've had for so long hasn't worked. So let's try something different. And maybe that different will be an autocracy. So combating that impulse requires, among other things, I mean, I certainly don't think they're the only things, The the eight items I focused on in the book, where particularly when you're thinking about opportunity, things like meritocracy are are very key. Where if you grow up and you don't think that even if you perform the best in your school and the best at your job, that you won't get promoted and you can't make your way into a civil service job or you can't make your way into a a top private sector job, you're going to be fed up with the system. I think the same thing goes for accountability, where if you feel that your politicians and your kind of private sector leaders are held to a different standard than everyone else you're going to say, well, this system is broken. Let me try something else. When you don't trust your government, same thing. You're going to be willing to try something else. And I can go on and on. But when you feel like your democratic system is not delivering, you're going to be more open to trying something else. And in many countries, that something else has proved to be either the illiberal democracy of Hungary that gives way to autocracy or something kind of more autocratic straight out. So that's pillar one of how you can kind of defeat the dictators. And pillar two is much more long term and thinking about by having more successful democracies, the more successful United States, a more prosperous United Kingdom, a more prosperous South Korea, more and more people are likely not only to be to partner with us and support the rules-based order, kind of quote unquote, that we broadly support, but also more likely to want to become like us in the long term, where if you're sitting in Vietnam and you feel like your, your autocratic system has maybe worn out a little bit and you can maybe if 20, 20, 30 years, if China's economic growth has kind of stagnated, if Singapore is struggling, and you're saying, well, these autocracies don't seem to be doing so great either, but the United States is performing much better, or the United Kingdom is performing much better, or Korea and Japan are performing much better. Maybe if you're sitting in Vietnam, or maybe if you're sitting in South Africa, you think, well, actually, a democracy would be good, despite the complexities of democracy and the tumult of democracy, maybe embracing that would be good, because look at how much more innovative the democracies are look at how much longer people in democracies live and look at how all, not all, but you think about movies, you think about books, you think about art, much of the world's best still does come out of democracies. So it is a much more long-term game plan on the second, on the second front of basically making sure that we are setting the example that in 40, 50, 30, 70 years, maybe more and more people are willing to, be, to become like democracies or become democracies themselves rather than continue looking at autocracy as a preferential model.
2: What about economic measures? Like, what's your thinking on the effectiveness both of sanctions at the government level, but also, you know, I don't know if you've heard about, you know, these different sort of campaigns around divestment. investment. Like, I think there's one called the defund dictators tool, which allows you to kind of see what your exposure might be to autocratic regimes, et cetera. How effective are economic measures generally? And then perhaps does it matter whether or not they're sort of government-led versus sort of independent investors, et cetera.
1: I think economic initiatives have a really mixed record. And probably the country I know best is Cambodia. So I'll use Cambodia as an example where for the better part of 30 years, the U.S. has kind of imposed relatively small sanctions, sometimes big sanctions. On Cambodia, because it's a one-party, one-man system, Though they've continued to crack down on the press. There is no real freedom of, of politics or freedom of speech anymore. And, but we've done that without any real goal. We've imposed all these sanctions without a kind of clear top-down White House-led policy of, well, is the goal to pressure Hun Sen, the prime minister, to be more democratic? Is the goal to sanction him into oblivion so he resigns or opens a democracy? What's, what's the goal here? And when you lack a clear goal and arguably maybe a small goal, maybe you want to sanction Cambodia so Cambodia does a very specific thing with regard to China, that might work. But imposing broad-based sanctions or even smaller sanctions with no defined goal short of toppling a government, I don't think is super wise. And it's one of the reasons why I think broadly, do I think economic engagement with autocracies is a problem? Not not so much. I think it's a question of where do you draw the line? So I'm perfectly comfortable with U.S. firms selling refrigerators to Chinese consumers. Don't think there's any moral anything morally dubious about that. I don't think China's population, Cambodia's population, Rwanda's population did not choose to live under autocracy. They should have access to iPhones. They should have access to refrigerators. They should have access to home improvement, whatever. That's not a problem, but it is a question of where do you draw the line? Because in a system like China's, of course— any private company is largely at risk of having some of their tech taken by the government. And if we consider China a pacing competitor, which I think is probably the right, the right terminology, you don't want that pacing competitor to have top-tier dual-use technology that could be helpful for military purposes. So it is a question of where do you draw the line? I mean, I'm, again, fairly comfortable selling refrigerators to China. I am less comfortable selling dual-use semiconductor technology that could be used for missiles or lasers to firms with any kind of links to the Chinese government. And when you think about broader divestment campaigns, the, I think the, the, Af- the South Africa example is kind of the obvious success story where it was a div- divestment movement with the hopes of ending a very specific policy, and it took a long time, but it, but it worked. But broad-based divestment of saying, well, we're going to cut off trade with Vietnam. Well, for, for what? What do you actually want from Vietnam? Uh, if the goal is cut off trade with Vietnam in hopes that Vietnam is dem- will democratize, that's a severely misplaced hope. And I think that's probably true for 99% of the current autocracies around the world. And I think, you know what, we're going to cut trade with Saudi Arabia entirely? I mean, that's not, not wise. But it is about making sure that those relationships are not ones in which we're sacrificing our values. And I think the Biden administration's decision to call out Saudi Arabia on the Khashoggi murder was really positive on this front, where it was, you know, Saudi Arabia is a longtime partner. We are not going to completely sever this relationship. But we're also not going to act like things are normal. Uh, We're not going to act like there wasn't a murder of of, uh, a permanent American resident. So that's kind of how I would think about it, where maybe very on very, very specific policy changes, divestment can be helpful. And I also think in the case of a country that maybe in the immediate after after effects of a coup, so like Myanmar, where the immediate after effects of an overthrow of a democratic in the immediate aftermath. Of an overthrow of a democratic government, I think it's much more morally acceptable to basically say, well, we are not going to allow for trade with this government that undid democracy and is committing human rights abuses. Whereas Saudi Arabia has never been a democracy. Oman has never been a democracy. Vietnam has never been a democracy. I think there's a, there is a different paradigm there, and you do need to engage with countries as they are rather than how we wish them to be.
0: One of the things in that, and in, in your answer where you talked about China seizing technology or China taking over companies and their remit made me think about something in the the meritocracy chapter. So you push heavily for a meritocracy where people can rise easily, that it's not. You have to go to Eton in order to be in parliament. You don't have to go to Harvard in order to get on the Supreme Court, those type of things. But I wonder if A meritocracy in the private sector and in civil society helps hedge against some of the issues of sort of a more clubby government. Because ultimately, there are only ever going to be so many slots at the upper tier of government. But that's not the case in private industry. It's not the case in civil society. There can be tons of new businesses that have CEOs that are young or diverse or, you know, and churches and school groups and, you know, whatever, that can all be ways of people working their way up and creating power centers for themselves that hedge democratically against maybe the government that's less representative.
1: I think absolutely. I think there can very much be a hedge. And I think the classic U.S. example here is the best and the brightest during the Vietnam War era, where they all went to Harvard, they all went to Yale, they all went to Princeton, they all went to the same kind of waspy prep schools in in, uh, in New England. And they were the most credentialed people, the best credentialed people, and made mistake after mistake. So I think it's fairly obvious that even in a democracy, kind of clubby governance can tend to produce really bad results where you do actually need people from not only all across the country, but you need people who all didn't go to the same undergrad or the same law school. And I I joke all the time, but it is true that working in the foreign policy space in D.C., I'm the worst credentialed person in almost every room I'm in where almost everyone did go to Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Almost everyone went to Oxford, GW, or Sice, and I didn't go to any of those. And you know that doesn't mean, I think, I, anyone who didn't go to Harvard, Yale, or Princeton shouldn't have a shot at some of these top White House jobs, or shouldn't have a shot at a White House fellowship, or a McCain fellowship at the Defense Department. And I think in the private sector, arguably is slightly better at it in the sense of Certainly a connection or a Harvard degree can get you that first job. It can. It's much easier to get a McKinsey job or a Goldman job with one of those degrees. But if you don't perform well, you'll just get fired because the private sector doesn't have the time or the patience or the money to kind of tolerate incompetence where it is a little easier to kind of get a job in government, a political appointment or kind of, yeah, mostly a political appointment kind of through some type of connection and even if you don't perform super well, well, maybe you probably won't get fired because they don't want to risk irritating the person who got you that job. So instead, you kind of get shuffled into a corner and maybe, you know, not doing the most substantive work, but you're not getting fired. And there are ways to maybe progress because you can still say, well, I had this nice job on my, on, my, on my resume, so then you get a nice think tank job or whatever. And it's certainly not just foreign policy, but I do think the private sector is probably something from which to has something on this front from which democracies, from which governments can, can learn. Where there is just less tolerance for incompetence. And sure, maybe nepotism gets you that first job, but you're not going to be CEO of Apple just because of nepotism. You're not going to be you know, in a boardroom, I think, just because of nepotism. I mean, certainly, I'm sure it happens, but it's rare. And I do think having a more meritocratic government, having more paths for people to progress does actually lead to better policy. And I'll talk about the U.S. just because it's, the, of course, the example I, I, know, I know the best. I think it is really troubling to me how hard it is to get into government unless you have some of these political connections, unless you have family connections. Because even you think about things like the the Presidential Management Fellowship, which is great. It's a great program. It's a really good idea to get young people into government. You kind of are selecting from the same few master's programs that are mostly based in DC. And maybe you can add Harvard and Princeton to that, but it is kind of self-selecting from the same the same group. And the State Department's a little different, but of course becoming a Foreign Service officer is incredibly complicated. It takes forever. There's no mid career entry anymore. So I think there are a ton of more pathways that democracies, particularly the United States, could implement to have more meritocratic governments, both at the lower level and the higher level. And I'm almost 100% sure that that would lead to, to better policymaking, both on foreign and
0: domestic issues. One of the things that I was thinking about when I was reading the book is how many of these issues are downstream from the social expectations. Of the citizens. So when I think about poverty in the US, which is incredibly tragic, it is a huge mark against us that we let the child tax credit lapse. It is horrific how we treat people in the richest country in the world. It's a moral stain. I can go on at length about how bad it is. But comparatively, poor people in America are much, much, much better off than many, many people. Even in well-running authoritarian systems, quote-unquote, like China, the poorest people in China are destitute. And I just wonder how much, especially when you think about emerging democracies like South Africa, like Brazil, where the first issues for them are physical security, crime, pulling their way out of poverty, that all of these ideas about long-termism about infrastructure, about trust in government are all good. They're all the right path forward, but also they don't fix the here and now. Whereas it seems like, you know, from a exterior perspective that places like Singapore, that places like China fix the here and now poverty problems.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I think the impetus for people to basically say, well, I care less about democracy. I care more about How you're going to deliver for me in the short term is kind of a massive issue across the developing world that is a real challenge to democracy precisely because the leading undemocratic powers of today have proved that you actually don't need to have liberal politics to have prosperity, which is a new thing. I mean, it may seem very kind of easy to us and very obvious to us that, of course, you can be China and Singapore and be rich. That's a relatively new thing over the last 30 years, where until the Soviet Union fell, there was this notion that the only successful way to run a country economically was to be a democracy. You know, no one went to Moscow and came back to New York and said, well, we should be like that. Whereas in every meeting, every book, book event I've done, I ask people to raise their hands. I say, how many of you have been to Shanghai? How many of you have been to, to Singapore? How many of you have been to Abu Dhabi? And how many of you came home and thought those cities were more efficient and better run than yours? And they all raised their hand. That is like unimaginable. 50 years ago, even 40 years ago, there was nobody going to a Soviet-aligned country or a communist country and saying, well, that's so much better than mine. So I, I totally empathize with the notion of economic develop- issues and issues like corruption being up front. But even in a developing country like, like South Africa, and you know the book wasn't even released in South Africa. It was just exported there. And I've gotten a ton of media interest be- precisely because they feel like their democracy doesn't work. And I've gotten most questions on issues like meritocracy and on issues like accountability. And accountability is probably the one that's most important for a developing economy. And I think there's this irony where Malaysia has for you know 15, 20 years been considered this developing democracy that maybe doesn't govern super effectively, that there are all these troubled elections. Malaysia put a former prime minister in prison and has so far rejected all of his pardons. He was extremely corrupt, like beyond a doubt. This was not a politically motivated trial. And that's a really positive example for a developing economy or developing democracy, because it demonstrates to the people that even a former prime minister, even a very politically connected person, even someone who's friends with the literal king will be put in prison for breaking the law. So accountability is probably for a developing democracy, the bedrock on which much of this is built, because accountability is directly tied to trust, where if your government's not accountable for either corruption or for just negligence, people are going to lose total faith in that government and you're going to end up in this, what I've kind of called the, the mistrust cycle or the mistrust loop. This kind of notion that basically when people don't trust their government, particularly in democracies, this is really important in democracies, if people don't trust their government, they are not going to listen to that government, they're not going to support that government, and they're not going to engage that government. And in democracies, that means that people aren't going to vote. And when people, particularly outside of Urban centers don't vote. They'll become so disconnected from the governing elites that the governing elites won't actually be able to provide for them because officials aren't aren't mind readers. They can't serve a population from which they've grown distant. So when people don't trust their government either because of a lack of accountability, on everything from corruption to crime to public services, when they don't trust their government because of those issues and accordingly opt out of civic participation, the result is this mistrust loop in which a distrustful public is disengaged resulting in a government even more disconnected from the public, which in turn leads to only a further deterioration of trust and so on and so on. So stopping that loop, primarily I think in developing economies, developing democracies, by holding people accountable for both incompetence and for corruption is really key to having that bedrock faith in government on which you can build a more advanced democracy, on, on which you can, or through which you can advance a more proper meritocracy through as you can invest in human capital and build the necessary infrastructure and whatnot.
0: Before we move to our final segment, I just want to again urge all of our listeners to buy Defeating the Dictators How Democracy Can Prevail in the Age of the Strong Man. It has a number of great lessons in it. It takes you around the world to a variety of places where we can learn from and places we need to fix. So I would highly, highly, highly recommend it. But with that, let's turn to our final segment where we each talk about something in the news we're following either culturally or politically. Charles, why don't you kick us off?
1: Sure. Um, I cheated a little bit in that it's maybe not directly in the news, but I was in Egypt in December and maybe two or three months before going, I bought Najib Mahfouz's uh, The Cairo Trilogy. Which covers one Egyptian family from 1919 to 1944, which is you know a period of drastic change and turmoil in Cairo and and the country more broadly. And the trilogy is three books, obviously, and it's 1,300 pages in very small print. 1,300 pages. So needless to say, I didn't finish it before or even while in Egypt. So at this point, the trilogy accompanied me to Oman, the United Arab Emirates, Egypt, London, and Belgium before I could finish it. But I'm I'm really glad I did. So for anyone who's even vaguely interested. In Egypt, uh, I would hugely recommend it. I mean, it's a massive commitment, but definitely worth it in the long term.
0: So, I have a little bit of a rant and request. I have always been a fidgeter. Even during this podcast, I have multiple stress balls in my hand. I'm spinning them around, I'm squeezing them, I'm like picking stuff off my desk, I'm doing a million other things while I'm listening. I, I just have always been this way. And as part of that, I constantly break everything. So office supplies, paper clips, stress balls, plushy things. I'm more destructive than your average puppy when it comes to desk equipment. That means that often my stress balls wear out after like a week of use. So the first thing is any manufacturers that are listening to this Fix your stress balls. I'm already stressed enough. I don't need to be stressed over the low quality stress ball that I'm receiving in the mail from Amazon. The second piece is more of a request, which is if you, listener, also deal with these challenges where you're constantly fidgeting or breaking things, please send me either through tweet or email or carrier pigeon your best, least breakable stress fidget toy so that I can no longer be, have a major line item of my monthly budget go to fixing broken things. Zoe, what are you following this week?
2: I have been following very closely the failure of Silicon Valley Bank and the fallout thereafter. I think there's been a lot of ink spilled already on what's happened and the impact on startup founders and on companies and on venture firms and things like that. I think what we don't have clarity on yet and probably won't for a while is what the consequences will be for forward-looking policy in this space and financial regulation. One thing that I found sort of funny about, about following all of this is that it seems like both people on the left and the right have been united in just sort of blaming the Fed in one way or another. And so there might actually be some bipartisan unity here, strangely, uh, you know, in the in the midst of a crisis. I also think it's interesting that there's been a real revisiting of some of the Dodd-Frank rules that were rolled back during the Trump era. In particular, one rule which, which really sort of raised the threshold for what is categorized as, a bank that's considered systemically important. Previously, the the threshold was fifty billion, and it was changed a couple of years ago to two hundred and fifty billion. Interestingly, Silicon Valley Bank assets were at about two hundred and ten billion, so just shy of that of that marker, which meant that they were not subject to certain types of rules and oversight and regulation. It's still hard to know whether or not that would have made a difference, but there is a, I think, fresh look that that is being taken at all of those roles and other types of measures that can be undertaken at both the state and federal level level to ensure that there's better management in the future. But it's been a crazy and evolving story. Um and it will be interesting to watch the 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 true sort of consequences over time.
0: With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative and is a proud member of the DSR Network. Please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find the show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, follow Zoe at ZWeinberg, and follow Charles at Charles Dunst. If you're a foreign policy expert under 40 and want to be featured on the show, be sure to follow the link in the show notes. This week's episode is brought to you by the Raccoon Dog Lovers of America. Do you love your local trash panda, but want them to be bigger and possibly carrying a deadly pandemic? Consider adopting a raccoon dog today. And after you unleash a plague the likes of which we've never seen before, join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.